I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Tatum Lee is an actor, director, and the creative director at Ren Theatre. She joined me to talk about Ren Theatre's production of The Drowning Girls at Toronto's Red Sandcastle Theatre, November 7th to 12th. In this conversation, we talk about what drew her to The Drowning Girls, her love of horror, and why that may have been inspired by her childhood love for Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch of the West, and much more. Here's our conversation. You're directing uh, The Drowning Girls at the Red Sandcastle. Yeah. And um, tell me, give me, what is the elevator pitch for The Drowning Girls? Um, well, The Drowning Girls, it's based on the real lives of three women, Beatrice, Constant Mundy, we've got Alice Burnham, and Margaret Elizabeth Lofty. And basically, those three women were murdered by the same man, Joseph, uh, George Joseph Smith. And it's basically about, after that event happens, how they come to in their bathtubs. And they're sort of found in this in-between state. And they're sort of coming to terms with what's happened to them and what's brought them to this moment would be the elevator pitch. And uh, and what is it that, that drew you to this particular piece? It was actually like a total fluke. I did not, I hadn't heard of the play. I had heard of the events, but I had not heard of the play. I'm actually working with a partner on an original story that takes place in the same time period. Um, and it's set in uh, Whitechapel based on a serial killer. And I was doing research for that. And this play actually popped up in my search. And I was like, I can't believe I haven't heard of this before because it's like right up my alley. Like it's, you know, it's it's something that I haven't seen very much in theater, which is something uh, creepy, eerie with like little elements of humor in it. Like finding that that nice balance is really exciting. So um, yeah, I was, I was thrilled and I, I ordered the script. I read it and I thought it was just like very... Um, intriguing and also the the themes of it are so timely so i i was i was really excited to jump on board and, and do it for the fall production and uh how did the how did the whole production come together you have a, a killer cast you're doing it at the red sand castle which is one of the best places in toronto for anything creepy or horror related 
Um, yeah. So how did the whole thing come together? Um, well, originally I was looking at a different uh, venue because I hadn't thought of the Red Sand Castle and I had cast my production with Adriana Prosser, who you know, is the is the manager at Red Sand Castle. And she was like, I actually feel like this would be like, like great in our space. So I went there, I took a tour and I was just like, this is exactly where this show has to be. Like, it's just, it's got such a vibe. Um, and, you know, like just like the red door when you walk in there, like it paints a very, a very clear picture of what you're, you're coming in for. So I'm, I'm really thrilled that that whole thing worked out and that the space was available at that time. Yeah. Timing is everything in that space. Yeah. Um, and of course, you're doing it in the fall, which is like yeah, the, spooky, the spooky season, basically. So that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, when you were when you were trying to figure out when to do it, was it like you knew you wanted to do it in the fall? Did things fall together for for the for the spooky season, or or did you just know fall season? I, I was hoping, truth be told, if I'm being completely honest, I was hoping to have the show run the week of Halloween. That was my original goal. And finding a space that was available was extremely difficult because everybody that has like a show with a similar eerie theme like wants to book for that week, obviously. So, um, you know, Adri uh, Adriana, she was sort of like, I've got the next best thing. I've got like the week right after that if you're if you're down. So I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, there can be creepy. The spooky season can extend past Halloween. Absolutely, like Halloween is actually my brother's oh, birthday. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's Halloween is a big part of my family. Like, we're we're really into Halloween, and I I'm always like sad when it ends. You know, I'm just like I wish it was just like a little bit longer. I wish it was like a couple like a festival that went on for like a week or something. So, you know, I think that it'll be good because anybody that is still in the Halloween spirit that's looking for something to do afterwards, they might want to come and check out. Well, show. you know, the fun thing is, is that it actually can extend because some of the, some of the early traditions around the Yule festival are quite creepy and horrific. So you can carry through from, uh, from Halloween into the holiday season without uh, uh, pouring a whole lot of sugar on it and letting it just be uh, uh, creepy and terrifying. So that can be fun too. Exactly. Maybe I'll maybe I'll direct a uh, Black Christmas <laughs> on stage. <laughs> That's awesome. It's never been done That's before. Awesome. Um, now, uh, one of the important things about 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 you know location is important uh, when you're putting this show together. You know, all of the director is obviously important. Um, but the cast is also super important. Um, what was the process of finding the the cast uh, for this production? Yeah, well, I have had the privilege of working with Adriana Prosser on a previous production of uh, State of Women that we did in 2015, and she is a formidable actress. And I, I'm such a fan of hers. And when she was available to do it, I was so thrilled because she has so much... Edwardian knowledge and Victorian knowledge with all of her like her history in that in that world as well so um she's definitely been um a huge asset to me like not just because of her amazing talent but just all the knowledge that she brings to the project as well um so I knew that I wanted to work with Adriana and I also wanted to work with uh, Vicky Villanosi because I worked with her on the previous production that I did of The Elephant Man and she's just I think she has the most amazing comedic timing. She can turn any sort of any sort of moment that should be serious into a moment that encompasses so many emotions all in once. Like I'm just like I'm I'm such a fan of hers. And then there's the newbie to our group, which is 
Amanda D'Souza. So I'm I'm really really thrilled that we have her, and she's just bringing like so much vulnerability to the character of Alice that I'm I'm excited each week to see the women work together because chemistry in a show like this where it's just three people alone on stage they're there the whole time nobody leaves that chemistry is the most important thing to see if they can keep the story going and their audience engaged so making sure that that was there i'd say was like the most important thing but i usually like to work with actors that i've worked with before ren theater is sort of like operated like a like a repertoire company where we we do have new people come in like all the time but at the same time like we like to pull from like a database of actors that we know are you know like amazing talents and I like having like a shorthand with my actors so that it just makes everything much more smooth when you're trying to like can you just like like move the thing over there with the thing and they're like reading in between all of your lines just be like yeah, yeah yeah like you don't just say anything I get it um I like having that kind of group around me that I feel comfortable with to explore. So, yeah. Yeah, shorthand a director short having a shorthand with 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 actors is always is always super helpful. Um I've worked with a few directors, uh, you know, multiple times and each time uh you do get that kind of rapport where where they will start to one director I've worked with so many times, uh, uh, he'll start to make a gesture of like, wait, no, no, no. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Uh, and I, I will do that, you know, just because we've worked together so many times. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice. It's nice. Right. To feel like you have that kind of like safety between the two of you. Like it's a safe space where you guys can just like create and see what happens. And that's very much the way I like to operate at all of my, the, all the productions that I do is I like actors to feel safe and able to, express and try things without any sort of uh judgment on my end and i feel like that's how you always get the best work out of somebody yeah absolutely so. speaking of of ren theater i want to talk about the origins of ren theater but in, in a little bit but first i want to talk sure. about i'm um, just sort of looking at you know this the the productions that i can see on the website and also you mentioned the elephant man uh are you drawn to a particular type of of theater and is that is does that lean or skew a little bit darker than than some people does it does it skew towards the dark uh, rather than something you know light and fluffy yeah i feel like it does to a certain extent like i i do have plans to like dive into like different genres and like breathe life into different stories but like i have a huge love for period pieces like i really love doing the research and submerging myself in like a different time and learning about like the etiquettes of that time. And, you know, and let's face it, like life is, life is hard. And the, the further back you go, you know, it's, it's, it, there's lots of pain in our history, you know? So I think that makes for exciting theater. I think there's lots of lessons to be found in our past. So yeah, like I, I, I feel like I am drawn to shows that are not set in the current day. And that are dealing with difficult, heavy themes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you do have to. I mean, there, there's the whole saying about you know, if you don't, those who who forget the the past are doomed to to repeat it. And and I believe 100%, that like so wholeheartedly. 100%. Yeah. And there are so many lessons in the plays of the past who are speaking about often you know issues that were happening at the time, which completely reflect uh, a lot of things that are yeah. going on in our world uh, because. Absolutely we go through the same cycle apparently because we never actually learn anything. Yeah. I mean, it's true. There's a, there's a movie that like, I'm going to totally butcher the, like the line in this thing, but it's called, um, oh, what's that movie? Um, Miss Pettigrew lives for a day. 
And um, I don't know if anybody's seen this obscure film, but there's like a there's a moment where like World War II is at the precipice of happening, happening, and there's two people that lived through the first one because they're of a certain age, and they they're sort of like it all seems so familiar, doesn't it? And the other one is like it's because they don't remember the last time, and you know like that's so that that gets mm. me because like if we don't look back we will repeat over and over and over again and i think people are um afraid to look back yeah so, especially when we're dealing with i'll bring it to the I stage mean, and you'll have yeah, to exactly <laughs> exactly and i appreciate i appreciate theater that just sort of like uh uh, uh you know it tells an entertaining story and then you leave and you i learned something you know or that's, I yeah. think, the the best use of theater, rather than like to hit somebody over the head with an idea until they until they feel like they've learned it. Yeah. Um, right. In terms of you know, you're just thinking about you know forgetting things. Um, I passed by a cenotaph uh, a while back, just a, a couple couple weeks ago, and uh, it just said uh, the Great War, and somebody that I was with was like, "Which war was that?" And I was and I said, "Well." Um, that's World War One because that that's the Great War at that time when they put that up. It's the it was the only war, and of course they figured we yeah. will never do this again. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, again, the cycles and the the forgetting and the and, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, it also didn't help yeah. that that all the people who came back from both of those wars didn't talk about it much. Yeah, I mean, like when you factor in like PTSD and like what people must have been through on both sides, like even people that weren't in the war, but were trying to keep their households going after that whole thing, you know, and get back to like their version of normal and move forward. I mean, like, I'm sure nobody wanted to talk no. about it. No. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's actually what my the, the first play that I worked with Adriana on. That's like what the themes of that show were. State of Women, it was about World War Two and women working in the factories while the men went off to war. And that was sort of what act one was about. And then act two was about after the men came home and finding that balance between how do we go back when our lives will never be what that was, you know, and yet, you know, is there something to look forward to, to the future? So, yeah. yeah I think about, I think about, about that transition a lot actually, because um, that's a transition that led us into um, the, the restrictive era of the fifties where, um, the, the roles within a household were so, um, s rigidly set that at a certain yeah. point, um, women were so dissatisfied that they were given volume just to make it through the day. Uh, um, mm -hmm. so it's like, yeah, that, that, and that was an artificial thing. Crazy, I know right? like, oh, Hey, we're going to take away all the things that you enjoyed and make you stay at home. How do you feel about that? It's terrible. I know it's it's awful. It's awful. And there's so many themes of that in like so many plays that are before a certain date. I mean, like we're still like to a certain degree, people are still trying to break free of that shell. So. Yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, in the 70s, you know, I when I was born, uh, uh, a woman could not open a bank account or get a credit card without her husband's permission. That's crazy. I mean, that's the 70s. I know. Like, we're not even talking that long ago. Like, it, it's, it's madness to think about somebody, a woman could walk into the... the the, the the bank and if she didn't have a husband she had to get her father's permission to open a bank account it's like that kind of that kind of restrictive which is just ridiculous yeah i mean there's so many themes of that in the drowning girls that like we that are in this this production i mean like i think one of the themes that i think is fascinating is that it wasn't just about marrying to have 
financial security. Some of these women that are in that, well, actually all three of the women that are in this play, they had financial security and they were sort of shunned from society in a way because they didn't have the man. You know what I mean? They didn't have like the husband. And because of that, it didn't matter that they could take care of themselves or had a place in the world. They, They were shunned from society because of that. So they sign over their life insurance. They, you know, they get married, um, you know, and in this case, they they married the wrong man, unfortunately. But, you know, it's just crazy to think that, like, until they had that in writing, that they were Mrs. Somebody, it's almost like they didn't exist, really, in the eyes of society. But it's just, yeah, it's, a yeah. fascinating. I listened to a podcast a while back. It's called uh, Bad Women, and it's about um, the the. The victims of of Jack the Ripper. It's not even about Jack the Ripper. It's about uh, the the women, and about how everybody has 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 said that they were they were prostitutes, and that's why they were killed. And in fact, historically, they were not. And in that society, yeah. if you were, were a woman who was not married, you were essentially a prostitute, and that's where that stigma came from. And so once yeah. you once you realize that, it you start to realize just how um, rigid, how how restrictive, how 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 difficult that period of time is that yeah if you want to be if you want to be accepted in the world you would have to be married mm-hmm. yeah it's crazy it's it's absolutely crazy it was a very dark time women were forced into doing all kinds of things that you know they never would have otherwise so yeah yeah um so you were I, you did the the Elephant Man, which is um, just a, a you know anybody anybody who's only seen the movie um, from yeah. the '80s um, should I at least read the play because uh, the play is 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 quite stunning and devastating in its in its truth mm-hmm. about humanity. Um, what is that? What drew you to that play when you did that in, the, in your last production? Yeah, I I mean like it's a very like it's a very heavy piece and it's also very dialogue heavy and it's a challenge for any actor to step into like so many of the characters but especially John Merrick and Dr. Frederick Treves. Um I had two brilliant actors. I had Jordan Imray play uh John Merrick and I had Robert Nobbin play Dr. Frederick Treves and I mean some of the some of the monologues that Robert had to say like I mean it was just like like four pages, like of tiny front and back, like medical jargon, like just like all anatomy stuff that like, I just couldn't believe like how he was able to like memorize all that stuff. But like, I I thought that it would be a good challenge for, uh, for the both of them. And I contacted them immediately and was like, I think I have a really juicy opportunity for the both of you. So, um, and obviously it's a, it's a story that is, absolutely heartbreaking i think the most the thing that drew me to that story though is just how you almost view john at the first half of the show like you're sort of feeling sorry for him and then you end up leaving that show feeling sorry for everybody else and not for john like because he's holding up a mirror to other people showing them all of their faults in a way and you're left feeling like Dr. Frederick Treves has had this spiritual awakening, you know, like poor Robert, like every single night had to have like a meltdown on the stage, like every single night. And, uh, 
Jordan had a, a different set of problems where it was, it was, he also had some very big monologues, but it was the physicality, right? It was holding those positions and the two of us finding which, um, how much would be too far in terms of his physical deformities, what would be distracting for the character and what wouldn't be enough. Um, yeah, that, that whole thing was a, was a big challenge and, and very rewarding. I, I, I loved directing that yeah, play. I could, the, the John Merrick is, is, is such a difficult, you making those choices about how far to go. And even with, mm-hmm. even with the, the way that he would, that he speaks, like making a decision about how far to, to take the facial dis- deformities as well. These are very difficult, mm-hmm. uh, uh, choices to make because you have to make that fine line between, you know, the character and also at what point does the audience stop relating how what point does the audience uh, uh mm-hmm. no longer see the person and that's that it's it's yeah. a real fine line yeah it is it is and also like our my goal was that people would start off at the beginning of the show seeing the elephant man and by the end they would see john merrick you know and that you would you would shed that whole illusion of you know the circus freak and, and and all of that and see him as the man that he was a very intelligent man that you know was uh very insightful um so i i think that like we didn't want to go too far with with his speech we wanted people to be able to hear the beautiful things that he would say in that show because he has some really well-written dialogue by bernard Pomerantz. so um so yeah mm, yeah my first exposure to that play was the movie, and then I found it was a play. So then I went back. Okay, David yeah. Lynch. Yes, and yeah. and produced by Mel Brooks. Which, yes, I which heard he that. kept his yeah. name out of the credits because he didn't want people to think it was a cat. It was a comedy. Well, I mean, like I like I agree. Like good. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But <laughs> I wouldn't have landed. No, but well. to me, to me, <laughs> the lack of ego to say I'm taking my name off of this thing, even though I'm producing it. Because my name has a particular, um, could be bad for this show, this 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 film. Yeah. So kudos to him for that. Yeah, agreed. I'm just thrilled that he was able to persuade his wife Anne Bancroft to be in the film because I think she's just like, she's an amazing mm. actress. Like I love the scene where they are reading uh, Romeo and Juliet to each other in his bedroom. I still remember being a kid and not seeing the whole movie because I was too young to watch it, but my parents were watching it. And I walked into the room like, well, that scene was going on. And I never forgot it. I had no idea what the movie was about or who this man looked deformed was. But I do remember like this beautiful like love scene almost playing out and thinking like, you know, I I wonder what that movie was Mm. about. (laughs) It just looked like, you know, it, it was such a beautiful yeah. moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I want to address the elephant in the room. It's terrible, terrible <laughs> transition to go through, but you'll forgive him for that. Um, which is that this summer there was another production done uh, of uh, the Bathtub Girls. Of the, the Drowning, Drowning Girls. girls. Bathtub Girls. That's really yeah. So the Drowning Girls. Bathtub Girls. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes these things end up in the zeitgeist and they happen at the same time, much like armageddon in the comet movie or whatever these things happen mm-hmm. um now if somebody w- do you w- what is the difference in your mind between these two productions i mean one was outdoors one's indoors one's in the summer one's in the fall but aside from that um is there a difference in in the way that the the mood is presented what's different uh about these two productions 
Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, Guild Festival Theater, I, uh, they were so lovely. They, uh, originally, the, the reason I found out that that show was going on was because we were trying to find bathtubs from different theater groups to rent because you would not believe how hard it is to find three white claw bathtubs. And when they, like, they seem like they're all over like, like online for people to come and pick up, but they're gone like so fast. It's like one goes online and it's like, oh, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Like I had so many bathtubs evade me, you know? So, um, we contacted a theater group that was out in Niagara Falls and they were like, we actually sold our bathtubs to Guild Festival Theater because they're doing a production of The Drowning Girls. And I was like, oh my gosh. So they gave us their their contact information and I, I, I sent them an email just being like, when you're done with your bathtubs, do you think we could buy them off you? And um, they had actually already sold the bathtubs in advance to another theater group somewhere that's I think in, um, I think they said Peterborough or something. Anyway, they had already sold those. But then, of course, I was like, I'd love to come to see the play because, you know, I, I just love to support any indie local theater, you know. And so, um, and the production was absolutely stunning. It was beautiful. And like, of course, you've got the Grecian ruins outside and everything and the the cast and that was just superb. The direction was beautiful as well. Um, but it's a very different direction than how I read the material and what I wanted to bring out of it. And I think that's what's exciting about multiple theater companies doing similar shows is that you're never going to get the same production because everyone's going to visualize it, interpret it differently, right? So um, this particular play has so many themes of it being eerie, creepy, and surprisingly hilarious. Like there's so much humor in it. And it just depends which one you you pull on and decide to sprinkle that throughout how much, you know what I mean? Like how much of the show are you going into a theme? And I think at the core of this production, what makes it universal and makes it um, relevant today is that it is about manipulation and it's about um, abuse of power. And that's not even about gender. Like, I mean, on the surface level, you could be looking at this as it's about like women that get like put upon by a man and blah, blah, blah. But it's actually deeper than that. There's that social construct going on at the time. But there's also people get manipulated of all sorts. That can happen to anybody. And whoever has the power, if you don't use it properly and you take advantage of somebody, you know, there there's pain and consequences that happen with that, right? So this show um, is quite a bit darker than that production, I would say. Um, it ha it, deal it leans more into those themes of abuse, um, themes of, uh, I guess, being love-bombed is, I'd say, the word that I would, I would use that would be relevant to today, like being love-bombed and then inevitably murdered. So it is very much a ghost story. And I think we lean into the fact that this is a ghost story. Um, and also because it, we're, our show is being done closer to October that we wanted to have that theme going through it. Um, but I do feel that um, anybody that went to that amazing production that Guild Festival put on um, would be seeing a very different show coming to Ren Theater. Yeah, at Ren mm. Sandcastle. Um, thank you for that. Thank you. 
Um, one of the things that I like to talk to people about when they come on the show is I like to hear about people's theater origin stories, the thing that brought them to the theater and made them want to keep doing it. So please tell me, what is your theater origin story? My origin story? Um, okay, let me think. Well, I had a kind of a unique um, start that kind of got me into like a creative mind, and that was my Nana. She owned a costume and makeup shop in Hamilton, Ontario. So it was called Janelle Creations. And my whole family, we took turns like working in there. And I was maybe like five years old from like the time I was five and 10, my Nana owned that shop. Um, actually, no, she owned it before I was born. But the first time I remember, I had memory of being in her shop was when I was five. And so um, turning into different characters, make-believe, putting cuts and gashes on my face, like that all started at a very young age for me. Um, and then I wanted to be put into all kinds of community theater. So I did lots of uh, uh, community theater growing up. But I remember the first play that I saw, it was a, mu a musical live that literally changed me, was Phantom of the Opera. I went to go see that. I'm sure so many people had that experience with that show. But my dad took me to see that with my with my brother when I was eight. And I had just never seen anything more spectacular in my life. Like I just like I owned the the two cassette tapes, you know, because I'm aging myself here, like because I was born in 84. So I mean, like, yes, we had cassette tapes. <laughs> um, yeah, and like I just literally fell in love with theater that day and like the the connection and the exchange between the audience and the actor. I was just so, I was so hooked. Yeah. And when the chandelier like fell, like I was just like, does it get any better? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, now a lot of kids will, will, will see a show and they will, they will love it or they will, they will do some community theater and they will love it. But uh, you know, the majority of people do not go from there to, you know, a life in theater, a career in theater. At what point did you decide that this was the thing that you needed to do? It was a long road of me trying everything except going into theater. <laughs> I did, I did, um, like I did all the stuff. I went to Theater Aquarius when I was a kid and I did their, um, their summer camps. And I did, like I said, all the uh, community theater and some like semi-professional productions in my teens and then I just had that moment where I was like you're never gonna make this your career so you better find something else to do like you better find like that thing that's you know the other thing that's gonna bring you joy in your life so I went to school for special effects makeup artistry um, and I went down that road and it was just through like a series of like unfortunate events <laughs> that I, I met different photographers that like wanted to photograph me. And so I started modeling for a little bit, which I, I wasn't really all that into, but I started doing that. And that kind of got me like in front of the camera again. And I didn't see that coming. And then from that, I ended up getting an agent and that agent was like, Oh, you have acting experience. Like, why are we putting you up for like you know, like theater and, and, and movies and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, like, because uh, I've, I've left all that behind. That's not how I'm going to make my living, you know? And so one thing led to another and I ended up getting put into a feature film movie. And that was not part of the plan. Like none of that was part of the plan. 
And I realized through slowly being like, I think it was the universe, but slowly being like pulled back in that I realized that I had never been happier, that I was like, I realized that by giving that up and not realizing that I had given that up, that I had actually lost the thing that brought me my joy. And that sounds so dramatic, I know, but you know, but I'm in theater, so I mean, it's straight affected. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I kind of got pulled back in and I um, wanted to start my own theater company. I've always, that's always been a dream of mine. So in 2011, I started uh, Ren Theater, which at the time was called Tandem Entertainment. It's funny how many, I don't know if you had this and if that is, if that is why you sort of like side away from going into theater acting, that sort of thing. Uh, when you say that that's something you want to do when you're, you know, people, when you're a kid, people are like, that's cute, that's cute. You start to say when you're a teenager, people will be like, it's a hard life. Mm-hmm. You know, won't make yeah. any money, like all this sort of stuff. It's really hard. And I could see, you know, a lot of people will take that and be like, oh, it's hard, you know. Um, but then yeah. if it's the thing that brings you joy, what will be harder, acting or sitting at a desk for eight hours a day? Absolutely. Like it's 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 literally I don't think I've ever met an actor that doesn't do this because they just have to. They don't know yeah. why, but they're just sort of like, I know that I'm going to be miserable if I don't No, it doesn't make any financial logical sense, you know, but like we do it because it's just, you know. It's like a life vocation. You know, you're you're um, you're committing to telling stories. You're committed to giving voice to people that can't, you know, and there's nothing more thrilling for me anyway than having an opportunity to tell a story that's going to slowly wash over a room full of people that you have their attention for an hour and 30 minutes, you know, and it's almost like they're subtly manipulated under the pretenses of it being entertainment but then they leave and have the discussions that you're hoping they're going to have in private. And it's, it's powerful. Like it's theater is so powerful. So that's why There's I do nothing it. better than when you are leaving the theater and there are still people outside talking about the show that they just saw. So yeah. good. it's so good. Yeah. Um, I mean, even if they don't like it, I mean, you're hoping that they, that they do, but I mean, even if they don't like it, it's like, there's almost like a joy in little bits of that too, where you're just like you're each person has their own opinion of what's if something is good or if something is bad or what they got out of it. I uh, I find that fun. No, 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 it's great. It's great. I I mean, it's better to have people <laughs> have a reaction to the thing that you're seeing, because one of the worst things is is people you know being apathetic to what they've just seen. And you know, I worked yeah. at one of the big theaters in in Toronto for a number of years as an usher, and I worked the door. So as people would leave, I would hear what they were talking about. And if the show was not particularly great, um, but but people have paid a lot of money to see that show, they don't want to admit to themselves that they're disappointed in the show. So they th- they say things like, "Everyone did such a great job," right? <laughs> Which is nothing. <laughs> It's nothing, yeah. but it's the equivalent of that was nice, you know, which is like yeah. death because they're going to go home. They, they're not going to ever think about the show again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. I think that the thing that would bother me the most coming from a, like a, a directing standpoint is that like, I always want my actors to feel proud of what they've done. And so you're hoping that it's going to strike a chord with the audience. And I'm sure that like, every single show is going to connect with at least somebody out there. It might not be the majority, but somebody's going to hear that and be like, that play was for me, you know, or that story like connects to me in some way. But 
I feel like I grade failure if there is like such a thing is us as a team feeling like we didn't execute what we had planned to. And because of that, people didn't connect to it. So, you know, as long as, as long as you feel like you've done that, that you've put, um, you've put on a show that was, uh, that told a story that you can be, that you can be proud of the way you did it, then, you know, it's, it's up to the audience, right? You're giving them, you're giving them this thing and you're just like, what you do with it is yours now. Absolutely. The worst is if the actor doesn't, doesn't even like the show. Like I've had occasionally I've, you know, said to a friend, you know, Hey, you're in this show. I'm going to come and see it. And they're just like shaking their head. Like, don't, don't come and see it. Yeah. Like this isn't the one, this isn't the one to come see. I appreciate it. I appreciate your support, but I would appreciate it even more if you didn't come and see this show. And you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Fair enough. That's it is bad. really bad. It's not what anybody <laughs> wants. And of course, it's the kind of thing where they, you know, they looked over their shoulder before they said it just to make sure that nobody from the show was around. But it's like, you know, it's not what anybody wants in a production. You don't want to leave. No, of course you want not. to leave like covering your face because somebody saw you in the show. <laughs> you don't put it on your, on your no, CV. No, like, yeah, for sure. That wasn't me. I wasn't no, in no, that no. thing. No. I, I mean, I've left, a, I mean, it's happened. I've left a couple <laughs> of shows off my resume. You know, it happens. But you know, yeah, sure. it happens to everybody. Because you know, when you're when you are, you know, when you're, and a lot of times, you know, you, it'll sound like a really great project. Then you get in, and you're like, "What did I sign up for?" You sort of stuck in the project, and you do it, and you do your best, and then you're still like, yeah. not, you know, too happy with with the production sometimes. Um, in terms of of your, you know, your trajectory, I know that you were, you 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 were in uh, the movie It. Um, yes. which was, I'm sure was, uh, I mean, you were obviously not playing one of the kids. You were playing one of the, uh, the adults. Yes. I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no, I wasn't, I wasn't him. I, I played a character called mm-hmm. Judith who was, uh, a woman in a painting that came to life to eat the children and drag them off to the sewer. So I was, I was. You know, it was great casting, and I was very method. <laughs> that must have been fun, though. Oh, I had such a blast! It was a really, really fun time, and such like, like a memory I'll I'll have forever. Like I, it, it meant so much to me because my brother and I used to watch the miniseries with Tim Curry like all the time. Like we used to watch that growing up, and I just remember that that movie scared the <laughs> shit out of me. Like it was absolutely terrifying. Tim Curry is like such a boss. And when I received like a, like the, what do you call it? Like a, like a casting to like go in and read for this part. I was like, I don't even care if I get this part. I just want to be able to tell people that I auditioned for the, for the Stephen King movie, you know? So it was an, it was a really happy surprise. Um, and you know, that kind of character sort of plays into, um, an interesting uh, fact about you is that your idol growing up was Margaret Hamilton. Ugh, just adore <laughs> her. <laughs> was was the Wicked Witch of the West your first introduction to her? Yes, yes. Honestly, like I mean, I hate to admit this because this isn't going to like sound like obviously I like her as a performer or an actor or whatever. I don't know if I see her in anything else. Like I don't know. Like I mean, I know that I saw her on Sesame Street, uh, where she reprised her role as the Wicked Witch of the West. But she was just so, um, 
I don't know, like, I mean, like, just like appearing in poofs of smoke and getting to fly. And like, I mean, like, I was like four years old when I saw it. And like, I remember I got my mom to buy me a massive hourglass full of like, like the red sand. And I would run up to my brother's room and just be like, Brett, you have this long before you have to be at school. And I'd like flip it over and I'd be like, be downstairs for breakfast. Like, yeah, like I just like, you know, she's hilarious. I, I adored her. I thought she was very misunderstood and she just wanted her shoes back. Like they're literally family. I know it's true. And Dorothy like compensates them for the whole film. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting because there are a lot of children who have the absolute opposite reaction to Margaret Hamilton in that role. I know. I don't understand that. You're but... you're in the minority in that role. In that in that in that bit yeah. that you were not uh, afraid of her. And actually, the funny thing you mentioned that episode of Sesame Street. It's like the lost episode. Like one of the lost episodes that aired once or twice, and and it just sort of like disappeared because they never reran it again yeah. because too many children were terrified because she was just as terrifying when she reprised the role. Oh God, they don't understand. What like it's, it's sheer gold. It's sheer gold. I actually, it's on YouTube. Actually, I found it. Um, I guess somebody like uploaded it within the last like year or something like that. And I was like, no way. It was crazy. Because she has this this neat little rapport with Oscar in that episode, if I recall correctly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that she's just like flying through the air and then she drops her broom. So she's got to go down to Sesame Street. I'm like, I'm here for it. Absolutely. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um. So, um, the, the interesting thing about, about, about that is, is, is that's almost is like what ushered you into, um, darker theater, like horror movie as well. It's probably like, uh, you saw that and, and because you had the opposite reaction to the witch than a lot of people did that primed you for watching it and horror movies and like being, uh, uh producing oh, yeah. things that are, are a little bit more on the, on the more horrific bent um, so it's like you were like, like ready to do this, uh, from the time you were five years old. I mean, in a way I'm always like, like my favorite, like, like my favorite films that like I can remember from being like a kid, like Maleficent was my other favorite, you know, villain. I was just like, I loved Maleficent. I loved the evil queen and Snow White, like from all those Disney films, like I always wanted to be the villain. You know, like I always wanted that. And then God blessed me with a face that made it possible. I was like, I'm so, I'm so here for it. I just like, I never wanted to play roles like that. And one of the first things I asked for for Christmas when I could was two things. I asked for a fog machine and I asked for a camcorder so that I could like make all my own films. And the amount of footage I have somewhere of me dressing up as the witch, like melting into piles of fog like are endless like somewhere there are those tapes so yeah that's fascinating definitely that's fascinating. because i remember as as, as kids my i think um i can't remember which of my siblings was the most terrified of the witch it might have been my sister um she was terrified of the witch but even more terrified of the witch melting yeah really yeah like the whole thing i was always i've always been so curious when i saw i remember being so curious about just the mechanics of it like how is it being done like and I remember like when my when my mom like was like, well, there's probably a trap door in the floor. I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, you know, like I just I just love all that. Like that's I feel like in another life, if I didn't direct, I would want to be like a set designer because like all that stuff, like like the the special effects of what makes 
um, all that stuff go down. Like it's just, it's just right up my alley. In fact, I can't, I find that the more productions I direct and I'm trying to figure out what my process is, if I have a process is that like the set dictates a lot for me. Like I have to create the world and then bring my actors into it and sort of, and then give them the freedom within the confines of that world. Um, so I feel like there is like a, some sort of set designer in me. Yeah, as well. absolutely. But it makes sense because, you know, the, 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 the character doesn't get to choose the world that they're in. It's imposed on them. So they can make choices right. within that, but it makes sense to, to build the world and then put the character into it than to try to build the world around the character. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, to talk uh, a little bit more about Ren Theater because we sort of alluded to a bit of its history, but I want to get a little bit more. Um, what are the origins of of, of Ren Theater? And uh, um, what was it that made you want to, I mean, the specifics of like wanting to start a theater company in the first place? I think, um, well, like the, the origins of the theater company have just always been uh, me wanting to tell stories and get the and get to pick the projects that I want to do. I want to be able to, um, I guess whatever inspires me in that moment, feel like I have creative say over what projects I'm picking. And I didn't like when I was acting, not necessarily having those choices that I, I wanted to be on the creative side of it. So that was one of the reasons. The other thing is I literally had a theater in every house I ever grew up in. Like my, I would create one in the basement or whatever. So I always knew that I was eventually going to have my, my own. Um, I started off with Tandem Entertainment and that was a company that eventually turned into Ren Theater. And it was done with my um, like sort of producing slash writing partner, Andy Liberopoulos. Um, and he wrote State of Women. And originally that production company was going to be us writing original shows for theater and putting them on together where he would write them. We would come up with the ideas together and then I would direct them. Um, and that still is very much what we do, but there's a lot of um, classical pieces that I've always wanted to direct, not just original works, like the the shows that I've mentioned, like Elephant Man and, and so on. We're doing Dangerous Liaisons next or Le Liaison Dangereux, as it's called in theater. Um, so there's there's lots of uh, pieces that I wanted to direct. So um, it's sort of more uh, a collaboration at times when we do like original pieces. So I rebranded the company under uh, Ren. So that was sort of the the origins of how that transitioned forward. And to you, what is what is Ren Theater's uh, mandate? What what is its what is its raison d'être? So like it's sort of like like the well like the wren bird right so like the wren bird like in like the 15th and 16th century sort of represented poets writers writers and artists so um i think like i said because we're i i function within that company almost like we're a repertoire company um so i kind of look at us like a band of artists that all get to you know work together in different uh different productions and um uh, i think that's why we picked the name and sort of what the company represents is is just um, people coming together to tell stories and hopefully uh, people will leave moved is the goal. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tatum, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the Drowning Girls at the Red Sand Castle. And uh, thank thanks so you. much. It's been I'm great.
This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.